kids in quarantine, uh, Clinton County College, and the latest buzz from WYSO's Culture Couch. Those stories and more coming up in the next half hour. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is WISO Weekend. First in our program today, the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in the cancellation of a lot of summer events in the Miami Valley. Phrase pavilion concerts, local water parks, and several 4th of July fireworks shows, just to name a few. Other events around the state are sharing that fate. In early March, when Ohio had yet to see a confirmed case of COVID-19, officials decided to drastically pare back the Arnold Sports Festival one of Columbus's premier sports events, now through public records and interviews compiled for Ohio Public Radio, WOSU's Nick Evans reconstructs how officials arrived at what they called a gut-wrenching decision. The decision to bar spectators from the Arnold started with a message from Houston. For the past 40 years, thousands of energy sector types have gathered in the city for a major conference. They come from all over the world, but on March 1st, organizers canceled it because of coronavirus fears. A Houston public health official sent the announcement to Dr. Myshika Roberts, Columbus's health commissioner. She forwarded the message on to Mayor Andrew Ginther's chief of staff. Her note was one line. We need to chat about the Arnold. You know, you go with your gut instinct. And I, I woke up the morning of March 2nd and said, I don't feel comfortable having a large-scale event like this. March 2nd was a Monday. Two days later, the Arnold Classic was set to kick off in Columbus, with tens of thousands flooding into the downtown convention center and the fairgrounds. For weeks, Roberts had been working on safety plans with the organizers. Monday afternoon, ahead of a conference call, Brett Lalonde from the Arnold told reps at Experience Columbus, quote, coronavirus is quickly turning into a PR crisis. Thousands had signed an online petition demanding it be canceled. The city planned a Tuesday morning press conference to announce the new safety measures. They included barring athletes from global hotspots like China and Italy. Teams from Columbus Public Health and Mount Carmel would screen athletes at the airport, at registration, and at each event. The convention center would have hand sanitizers every 20 feet, and Mount Carmel was ready to treat COVID-19 patients. Still, minutes before the press conference, Governor Mike DeWine was having misgivings. And as I recall uh, that morning, I called the mayor and said, hey, I'm rethinking this thing. I think you and I need to talk some more about this. Uh, We need to really kind of take a deep look at this. And I suspect that's when he canceled the press conference. The mayor, the governor, their staffs, and their public health teams spent hours Tuesday in a conference room going over the situation. They knew the economic cost. The Arnold generates $53 million for the local economy. At the same time, other big spring events around the country were still a go. The South by Southwest Music Festival and big trade shows in Orlando, Atlanta, and Las Vegas. State Health Director Dr. Amy Acton and Dr. Roberts laid out the public health case. Roberts says she knew the stakes were high for the governor and the mayor. They had that additional weight on them, so I felt a tremendous amount of pressure to provide my scientific expertise. While they worried about athletes arriving from countries already experiencing community spread, it quickly became apparent that large crowds were the greater issue. Mayor Ginther says right away the Arnold Expo, a large trade show connected with the competition, looked like too great a risk. Initially, what the governor and I were going to do were to issue separate orders. CPH would issue orders for those within the jurisdiction of Columbus and CPH. 
and the state would issue orders for the fairgrounds. But Ginther says he and the governor stepped out into the hall, and after a brief conversation determined the better course was to speak with one voice. Well, good evening, everyone. We apologize for being late. They announced their decision at a Tuesday night press conference. We have all decided to move forward with the athlete competition at the Arnold Classic, but not to allow spectators or the trade show to continue. You know, you second-guess yourself. I second-guessed myself many, many times. It was was physically, uh, you know, just tough. I mean, it was... DeWine says his kids and grandkids' experience in track and field made him sensitive to the athlete's perspective and prompted their middle course. It was the model the state turned to for NCAA and high school competitions that were eventually canceled in the following weeks. DeWine and Ginther both credit their public health officials and highlight the hindsight argument Dr. Acton and Dr. Roberts made during their deliberations. Here's Ginther. This is a really tough decision today, but a week or two from now, it'll look like a no-brainer. And that I've heard and been reminded of and and confirmed over and over and over again. And those other big events, including South by Southwest, all canceled in the days and weeks to come. For Ohio Public Radio, I'm Nick Evans. Almost 600 Indiana prisoners have tested positive for the coronavirus and 16 have died during the pandemic. When inmates get sick, they may be put in isolation, which means they lose touch with their families. Meanwhile, relatives are left to wonder if an inmate has COVID-19, and they say that prisons refuse to disclose even basic information that would put them at ease. Side Effects Public Media's Jake Harper reports. Sherry Sanders last spoke with her husband, George, on April 12th. It was Easter Sunday. He told me he was very sick. He had a fever of 102. And he just, he knew he had it. But they weren't checking him. And that's the last I have heard from him. George is in the Westville Correctional Facility for dealing meth. Sherry says he has diabetes and other medical issues that make him susceptible to even minor illnesses. Whenever he gets sick, he's hospitalized. So she worried when she lost touch. She says George didn't call on their anniversary or his birthday on April 26th. The prison wouldn't tell her George's condition or location, and other people gave her conflicting stories. Some said he was fine. Others said he was dead. Four weeks later, prison staff still won't tell her what's going on. Every story I've heard, he's been in the hospital. But I just, I don't know. I don't know what to do. The Indiana Department of Corrections says prisons can give out general information, but more detailed medical info can only be shared if an inmate signs a release form. The agency says it's to preserve patient privacy. I asked the DOC spokesperson, David Burston, about the policy. It sounds different than what I've been hearing from the families. They're told that they can't find out anything. Everybody's perception is their reality. We've got 27,000 people to have a different perception. We are never going to be able to satisfy everybody. Two experts told me that prisons could be more forthcoming with information about inmates. Elizabeth Gray is a health policy researcher at George Washington University. She says federal patient privacy laws may not apply to Indiana prisons, even if they did. Family members and individuals can receive health information about a a patient without the patient's written authorization in a number of different circumstances. Even without asking the inmate, she says prison staff could tell family members that an inmate has COVID-19 or has been isolated, as long as the staff doesn't believe the prisoner would object. 
So I can understand why they're just saying no, but they also could just say yes. Grace says if prisons are worried about privacy, they can just hand out release forms whenever prisoners get sick. It's not clear if Indiana's prisons are doing that. Burstyn said he wasn't sure. Martin Horn is a former head of New York City and Pennsylvania corrections agencies. He says prisons should tell families an inmate is sick before they call and ask. Notification, I would think, would be a good thing. No, it's just about being smart and sensitive. Burstyn said that due to security concerns, Indiana prisons only notify families when an offender's death is imminent. But I spoke with the families of three inmates who died in recent weeks. They all said the same thing. They didn't get a call until after the inmate died. Scotty Edwards was sentenced to 40 years for attempted murder. His sister, Gloria Sam, says he had recently transferred to Westville so he could use the law library there. Then the pandemic started. He said, I am afraid of this virus because we're in here close together, and if it comes out, it's going to spread like wildfire. Sam and Edwards lost touch in early April, which was unusual. Then on April 14th, she got a call from prison staff. She thought they were going to say Edwards was sick. And they said he had, he had passed. I said, passed? What do you mean passed? He died? And they said yes. Sam says the phone call was one of the most hurtful experiences of her life. If possible, she would have wanted to say goodbye. Jay Carper, SideFX Public Media. You're listening to Why So Weekend. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks for joining us. Today on Dayton Youth Radio, we have the fourth feature in our series, Teens in Quarantine, with stories from Nick Qualheim, a student at Oakwood High School, and Nicole Henderson, a student at Fairmont High School. My math teacher hands us pink slips on how she was planning on running class if we did get quarantined. The day after I received my pink slip from my teacher, the loudspeaker boomed during 7th period astronomy class. My principal announced that Governor DeWine decided to close all schools until April 1st. Although I know how serious this disease was, I never thought it would be this bad. My name is Nick Qualheim. Some of the things I love are music, videography, and skateboarding. I play guitar and alto sax, and I'm always trying to expand my abilities. Right now, I'm in a band called Nudist Sunstrike. During the weeks and days leading up to the pandemic, tensions in school have been very mixed, but the general mood was mild. One day in class, I was reading a news article on my phone that had mentioned the director of CDC saying it's not a matter of if coronavirus spreads, but when. It really just seemed like there were two things that can happen, that being, you get a small cough and you feel like garbage for a week or two, or you feel like you're drowning and struggle for air while you feel like you absolutely can't leave your bed and you need to go to the hospital so they can help you breathe long enough for your body to fight off the infection. Damn, that's crazy. It's been really hard to not be able to see anyone during quarantine. The person I talk to most is definitely my girlfriend, Audrey. Neither one of us are allowed to hang out with other people. Fortunately, we've been able to negotiate being able to go on walks together. The stay-at-home order really did mess up a lot of things for me. Right now, I'm in a band called Nudist Sunstrike. My band is me, my friends Ethan, Chi-Chi, and Kevin. Unfortunately, we can't practice online. There is a slight reception delay that makes it really hard to interpret when to start playing, and it can throw the whole band off. We had about two practices when DeWine called shutdown, and we had like two or three shows planned. It really just made me feel sad that I don't get to play. I really wanted to play for all my friends and Audrey. 
For now, all I have is time, so I've been using it to get better at my guitar and play as much as I can. For Dayton Youth Radio at Oakwood High School, this is Nick Qualheim. I thought that online learning and like time management, those were all going to be skills I got in college, but um, we're still teenagers, and so time management isn't a skill we have fully developed yet. The hardest part for me has been procrastinating. I am one of the biggest procrastinators I know, and when you're online school, like you can put off your homework hours. You can do your homework late. Not even hours, but days. Like You could literally put it off days later. So I remember I was sitting in 10th period chemistry class and the hallway was louder than usual and I kept on hearing people say like coronavirus this and coronavirus that. I thought it wasn't that big of a deal. I hadn't heard of that many cases in America yet. So I was just like unbothered. So this part might be frowned upon, but Twitter is like my main news outlet. I think it's actually that way with a lot of teens. I'm not really sure, but I think so. I went on the trending page and I saw like Ohio schools was trending and then that's when I knew that it was like for real. So the next thing I noticed was the sound of the classes because they were all cheering and yelling and then it was like a movie honestly and everybody was scared of getting infected by you and you were scared of getting infected by them. Okay so um there's a common theme with everybody I talk to and that is how excited we are for this to all be over. When you're sitting at home and you're just thinking, you're just thinking about what you should be doing. Like on prom night, I was just thinking like, oh my gosh, like I should be at prom right now. School closing actually did mess up one of the most important things in the whole entire world to me. Like if you know me at all, you know that track is the thing that I am the most passionate about. And I've been working very, very hard since November for this season. Um, I do the 100, the 200, the 4x1, the 4x2, long jump. And if you put me in the 400, I'll run it. And I know that, like, me talking about track, you know, it just it sounds like such like a, like a me problem and even like a first world problem because people are dying because of COVID-19. But once I found out that the season was totally taken away from me, it's still just heartbreaking to not be with the team. Um, track is good for me. That's Teens in Quarantine, written and produced by Nick Walhan of Oakwood High School and Nicole Henderson at Fairmount. Special thanks to Laura Hutchins. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Basine Blunt. Find more Dayton Youth Radio stories on our website at wyso.org. County Lines is WISO's series about small towns and rural communities in the Miami Valley. This year, we're bringing you the voices of women living and working in the rural parts of southwest Ohio. Before the coronavirus pandemic, producer Renee Wild met with faculty and students at Wilmington College in Clinton County. 
and heard their ideas about rural life and the prospects for a career in agriculture. Here's Renee with the third story in our series. Wilmington College students Kayla Wise and Lucy Inge come from very different backgrounds. Kayla grew up in a remote farming community in Ohio. Lucy comes from the suburbs and has lived in different areas of the U.S. Lucy hopes to live in a rural area sometime in the future. And in their interview, Kayla asked Lucy about ways to counter the negative image the media has projected about rural communities. The following interview was done in the lobby of the Robinson Communication Center at Wilmington College. Hello, this is Kayla Wise, and I am interviewing uh, Lucy Angie, one of my fellow students at Wilmington College. I've always said my retirement plan is to farm. I've had great neighbors when I've lived in more urban and suburban neighborhoods, but I think the culture of rural areas requires that sense of community. I'm hoping to go to Japan this summer to the Asian Rural Institute, which it's a place that trains uh, farmers, farmer community leaders from the Pacific, all over Asia and Africa, and encourages them to use tools that they would have around them and resources they would have to uh, do sustainable farming in their communities. How can we change the world where we are at when Looking at the world's problems, it seems that it's too big for just one person to tackle. Everyone's actions make a difference because Clinton County was really devastated when DHL left in, I think it was 2007, 2008. The community basically was completely devastated and people worked together and they started a community garden that helped feed hungry and they started a farmer's market and churches came together and had food pantries and provided utility assistance and slowly those people uplifted other people and eventually the community starting to recover and we're seeing smaller businesses and I think more economic growth and it's exciting to see this like this new phase for Clinton County. What would you say to someone seeing the rural side and only hears the bad stuff that is said on the news, how would you describe the values or the benefits of a rural community? There's a disconnect, as you were t- saying earlier, between urban and rural areas and the suburbia that connects them. There's invisible walls. And I think it goes back to understanding we all have something to give to society and that we all are equal. We're all different, but we all are equal. And I think integrating some of those aspects in an urban environment and teaching that in our schools, I think fostering that sense of understanding and empowering people with that knowledge, I think would really go a long way in sort of debunking the myths of rural communities and helping strengthen the connections between the urban and rural, especially politically, because that's, that's become a great divide. We need to be unifying ourselves as Americans across the board, no matter what kind of area we live in. And I think it starts with with wanting to understand and going to those places and experiencing that and fostering appreciations for the different kinds of lifestyles Americans lead. That was Wilmington College students and friends Kayla Wise and Lucy Inge. I'm Renee Wild, the producer of County Lines, WYSO series that gives voice to our rural communities. This interview was produced in conjunction with the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WYSO.
County Lines is made possible by a grant from Ohio Humanities. Find more of that series on the WISO homepage. Honeybees are remarkable creatures, industrious pollinators necessary for producing most of our food crops like apples, cucumbers, raspberries, and pumpkins that grow on Miami Valley farms. And of course, for honey. With wild populations dwindling, most honeybees are now kept as willing workers by human beekeepers. Community Voices producer Jim Kale talks with Greg and Melody Blatt of Bellbrook about their path to a new hobby. After a quick greeting, maintaining our social distance, Greg produced two beekeeper suits and instructed me in the proper way to check the white plastics jacket for a snug fit around the openings. Zipping up the large netted helmet, covering the zippers with Velcro flaps, then checking gloves and jacket. Properly protected, we made our way across his well-manicured lawn in Bellbrook to a wooden box sitting on a plank supported by two cinder blocks. I put the mic in close while Greg took the top off the hive. I have to tell you, I've never been this close to a beehive. Yeah, It all kind of started out as a funny joke. Kaif and I were at a uh, dinner party with some friends, and my wife made a comment. You know, I said, I've always liked a man in uniform, and I told Greg he should be a beekeeper. She finally said, well, I think it would be fun if, if Greg got into beekeeping and wore one of those beekeeping suits. So, of course, they all laughed. <laughs> I'm sitting in church one morning. Sitting behind me was a couple, and I introduced myself. I asked him what he does, and he said, well, I'm retired. And I said, oh, I said, what do you do to keep yourself busy in, in retirement? He says, I'm a beekeeper. And so I told him the whole story about, you know, the, the dinner party and my friends and so forth. And he started to laugh. He says, well, you'd probably like to come to one of my beekeeping classes that I teach for the city of Kettering. I texted my wife. And I said, honey, you're not going to believe that. I just got a sign from God. After classes, bee boxes, suits with net helmets, gloves, and live bees by mail order, Greg joined the over 6,600 beekeepers in Ohio as a rookie beekeeper with two hives going into the winter. What's the biggest surprise you've had in all of this? I had no idea how orderly everything was inside of a beehive. There's just so much order to it. I just, you know, I just can't imagine, frankly, I can't imagine this all happened because two rocks collided and it just appeared. I mean, it just, there, there has to be something bigger that, that put this whole symmetry together. It's, when do you find out if you had a successful overwintering? It's a good question. So if, if you get into temperatures somewhere in the high 50s, low 60s, you can go out and kind of check on the hives. So I actually did that uh, about a week or so ago. And um, as it turns out, when my hives died. The other hive is doing fantastic. Hive, you'll probably get 30 pounds every time you harvest. What's a pound of honey worth? From $10 to $12 a pound. How many hours did you put in? Your first pound of honey generally comes out, you got about $1,500 in it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not about the money, right? But you're doing a lot for the environment, you're doing a lot for the, uh, for the human population. The bees are the biggest pollinators we have. If we don't have bees, honeybees, to go out and pollinate, then we won't have food crops. And if we don't have food crops, we're not going to survive very long. But did you know all this before you started? No. Had no idea. <laughs> had no idea. The bees are out pollinating crops and flowers, gathering pollen from Xenia and Kettering before coming home to Bellbrook to make honey in Greg and Melody's hive. Okay, now i got to ask. 
What's your reaction now that you're in uniform? Uh, well, you know, surprisingly, uh, uh, she just wants to hunt. <laughs> For WYSO Radio, this is Jim Kane. Culture Couch is made possible by a generous grant from the Ohio Arts Council. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is WISO Weekend. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. Greg Adams joined the Marine Corps in 1977 because he wanted a military career like the ones he saw in the movies. But he struggled during his service with drug abuse and the stereotypes of Marines as bad boys. Today on Veterans Voices, Marine Corps veteran Greg Adams of Springfield talks to his daughter, Melissa Clancy, about the Marine he was then and the father he is today. Tell me, Daddy, why do you think you joined the Marines after high school. Was it because of a sense of obligation from, you know, grandpa being in World War II and your older brother served in Vietnam? Do you think it was a sense of, I must carry on or what? I'd watch all kinds of John Wayne movies and stuff. So, (laughs) well, I was just watching, you know, watching the war movies movies and then wanted to be... I guess, like those guys in the movie, like, a you hero. know, a hero. Yeah. What was your experience in boot camp like? That was rough. A lot of the guys uh, did drugs when, when I was in. And full disclosure, I was using drugs before I went into the Marines. Um, and in fact, I did my fir- first hit of acid just a couple days before I went into the Marines. Oh, you know, wow. I was smoking, uh, we, before we went to chow in the morning, we would smoke one or two joints, go to the chow hall, come back. And as we're walking back, we'd smoke one or two joints, go to first formation, get assigned to where we was going. How is it that you would be able to smoke that much and still be able to perform your duties accurately? We probably could have done it a little bit better. <laughs> okay. But during that time, but I mean... That's just the way it was, for me anyway, and quite a few of the guys I ran around with. Wow. So was I a, a good Marine? Not in the – not like these guys today, okay. no. But was I a good Marine in the legend, so to speak, or the myth of a good Marine? Yes, because I was a troublemaker. You know, I'm not – I'm not particularly proud of my service in the Marines because of that, because the drugs and alcohol did absolutely destroy a dream, a childhood dream of mine. Yeah. But the Marine Corps, once I quit drinking and once I quit smoking dope um, and taking the pills and all that stuff, um, it made me into the man that I am today. So I'm very proud of what the Marine Corps did for me. Nobody is a perfect dad, but you tried everything in your power to instill in my brother and I a a sense of honor and discipline in what we do. And being the daughter of a Marine, even a bad Marine or an okay Marine, is better and it has made me into a better person. So I want to thank you for that. Well, darling, I love you both very much. 
That was Marine Corps veteran Greg Adams and his daughter, Melissa Clancy. This conversation took place at WISO as part of StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, which visited the Miami Valley last summer. Veterans Voices on WISO is presented by Wright Pat Credit Union with additional support from CareSource. The story was edited by Will Davis. Veterans Voices and other stories you've heard today are produced at the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WISO. Find more on our website at WISO.org. And that's a wrap on today's show. I'm Jerry Kenny. We'll be back with you next Sunday. Now, stay with us for Vic McCunis and the Book Nook. blues fan and host of the newest program here on WISO, The Blues Revival. Meet me Sunday afternoons for a journey through time, blues time. Like the old cats say, if you don't dig the blues, you gotta have a hole in your soul. Nobody wants that. Now I know that your love is with you. For some doctors in New York City, working at the epicenter of the pandemic has meant taking on unfamiliar roles. A pediatric physician needing to take care of critical adult patients is is unheard of. On the front lines of the pandemic with a doctor in the Bronx. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up this afternoon at 5 on your public radio station, 91.3 WYSO.